0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to our sermon text this morning in 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Continuing our studies in 1 Peter, today looking at chapter 2, 11 and 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray for your help as we study this portion of it today. Father, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. Open our eyes, Lord, to see ourselves as you see us. Open our eyes to see how your word needs to apply to our lives and and guide our lives this week. For we pray it in Christ's name, amen. You probably have heard the saying, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. That statement is attributed to Francis of Assisi, and of course he's just saying that our conduct should be such that our lives bear so powerful testimony to the gospel that words are practically unnecessary. I think you've also heard me say that I totally disagree with that statement of Francis of Assisi. Uh, You've heard me take exception to it, because the problem with that statement is it confuses the gospel with the effects of the gospel. How we live is not gospel. The gospel is good news. The gospel is information. The gospel has to do with certain historical facts that God sent His Son into this world to live in obedience under the law for us, to die on the cross for our disobedience to the law, to atone for it, and He was raised on the third day, triumphing over death and over sin for us. And those things can't be communicated by the way that we live. They are too specific. They are too detailed. They require words. Because they are, in fact, information. They are Those things are good news. Now, how we live, while it's not the gospel, should be the effects of the gospel. It's the, the transforming power of the gospel, of Christ, of his spirit at work in us. So it's not the gospel, how we live. Uh, it is the effect of the gospel. In fact, it could be just the opposite. Someone who is struggling in their sin could see you, at least in what they see of you in your obedience to Christ, and be caused to despair, think, I could never be like that. So far from our lives being the gospel, uh, they could, could actually discourage someone else. The gospel is the words; it's the message, it's the information. How we live is the effect and the power of the gospel in us. But I will say, however, Uh, I do agree with Francis of Assisi in what he says there that the way we live is important in our witness to other people. Here's where his statement comes into play. How we live as Christians does play an important part in our witness to this world. In other words, behavior matters. It matters in the first place because it, 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 is, uh, it gives a first impression to those around us. When someone meets you and gets to know you, even before they know maybe that you are a Christian, they see the way you live. They, see, they, they hear the way you talk. They get a sense of the things that are a priority to you and things that not only you do, but things that you will not do. Maybe before they ever learn of your loyalty to Christ and of your faith in the gospel. So that first impression is important as a way of, of opening the door, paving the way for a faithful word testimony to Jesus. You don't want your testimony of faith in Christ to come as a surprise or a shock when they see how you've been living before telling them, yes, I'm a Christian. And they see a disconnect. So first impression uh, is a good reason for the behavior but also because the the behavior matters because it either reinforces the testimony of our faith in Christ or it contradicts it. Once they know you're a Christian, then they're watching. And they see how you live and how you live either reinforces and backs up your testimony of faith in Christ or it contradicts it. And they say, "Boy, you know, this person claims to be a follower of Jesus and I have some idea what that means, but The way they live doesn't seem to go along with that. So behavior matters because it gives a first impression and because if someone gets to know you and knows you're a Christian, it either helps to reinforce the testimony of your lips or it contradicts it and may well offend the person when they see this contradiction. Well, as we come to our text this morning, Peter begins to talk about behavior. Now, up to this point, he's been giving the indicatives of the gospel, the statements about the things that are, you know, what God has done for us in Christ and who we are in Christ, factual matters. This is who God is and what he has done, and therefore this is who you are as Christians. It's it's information given to us. What for me with this pattern in Paul's writings, you know, where in uh in Ephesians. You know, the first three chapters are information about what God has done for us in Christ. And then in chapter four, Paul hits the therefores. Therefore, live this way. Be this way. Do these things because of who you are in Christ. As was pointed out in the the, the Grace and Men Conference, which some of us uh, enjoyed Friday and Saturday this weekend, uh, you know, you look at Romans. the The first exhortation, the first imperative, the first statement to do something in Romans doesn't come until chapter 12. The first eight chapters, Paul is explaining the gospel, 9, 10, and 11. He's talking about the gospel in relationship to Israel and what's going on there. And then he comes to 12 and he says, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to offer up yourselves as living sacrifices. And so it is here. Peter has established the gospel and who we are in Christ. And now he kind of enters the body of his letter by saying, in light of who you are, this is how you live. And notice he doesn't begin with therefore, as Paul so so often likes to do, that logic of now this, therefore that. But he begins with a very personal appeal. He says to them, beloved, this, this personal, this affectionate, this endearing appeal to them, Because Peter wants to come across not as a tyrant, not some authoritarian figure whose apostleship has gone to his head, but as a fellow follower of Jesus, as as more of a father to these believers to whom he writes. And he appeals to them in an affectionate way, beloved, and in Greek it is the word for love, those whom I love. And so he wants to to cushion, it's not that his exhortations are harsh, but he wants to to put them in the context of his love for them, his concern for their well-being. And so he begins uh, with this word, beloved. He does it one other time, actually, and that's just before talking to them about persecution in chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. But here he begins his, his, his exhortations to them, his instructions to them by reminding them that they are dear to him, that he loves them, and that what he is saying is for their well-being, much as parents speaking to their children might teach them in that context of love and an assurance of, of regard for their children. Well, he gives two basic instructions, two verses here, and essentially two basic instructions with some supporting information that we'll look at. First instruction, the first basic instruction that he gives to them and in Scripture here gives to us is to abstain from fleshly desires, to abstain from fleshly desires. Verse 11, beloved, I urge you, I exhort you, I beseech you, plead with you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your Now, we hear the expression passions of the flesh, and we think particularly of sins of the body, sins of sexuality, sexual immorality. Certainly that would be included, Uh, living as they were in a a pagan environment where where such immorality was quite common, not only in, in the culture, but in many of the pagan religions. Now, that was an important exhortation. Uh, In many ways, they lived as we live in a pornographic age, pornographic society. And that, that bombardment comes at them from every side. And so Peter says, I urge you to abstain from these passions of the flesh. They include sins of the body, yes, but it also includes sins of the soul. Now, Peter may well have in mind the more physical sins here, uh, and it's Paul specifically who likes to use the word flesh, the Greek word sarx, uh, to refer not just to the body but to the fallen and sinful nature. But I suspect that that's certainly true here with, with Peter as well, that, that when he speaks of the desires of the flesh, or literally our fleshly desires, that he's referring not just to physical sins, physically physical sinful impulses, but those that are more of the Spirit, those that are more of attitude. Let me me give you an example of that. I do want to borrow from Paul here to illustrate Peter. But Galatians chapter 5, a chapter you should know, if only because that's where you find the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is preceded by the works of the flesh. And notice what those works include. This is Galatians 5.19. They do include sins of the body. But they go beyond that. Notice notice the list. Uh, Paul says in in Galatians 5.19, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, this misdirected worship is is a sin of the flesh, a work of the flesh. Sorcery, witchcraft, that kind of thing. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Those kinds of things, too, are works of the flesh, of our fallen and sinful nature. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions. How many Christians who would never tolerate sexual sin tolerate division in their church, in their family? That, too, is a work of the flesh. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. These are the kinds of things Paul describes as the works of the flesh flesh, which are obviously not just bodily sins, but sins of the fallen nature. And certainly I think Peter would agree with that. He may be referring specifically to sexual sin, but he certainly would agree that these these fallen impulses include non-physical sins like jealousy or division or or fits of anger uh, and, and those kinds of things. Now notice what he says about them. He says to abstain from them. Almost seems like a passive word. Just, just don't engage in those things. Uh, I think Peter would certainly put that in a, in a very active sense. Fight against them, as we'll see, you know, to to have nothing to do with them. In fact, the word Peter uses is a word that, in another context, can refer to distance, being afar off. Almost as if Peter is saying, keep as far away from possible as these kind, from these kinds of behaviors. You Remember uh, Joseph. When uh, Potiphar's wife found herself helplessly enamored of Joseph and uh, was trying to persuade him to engage in all kinds of things he shouldn't be doing, finally Joseph just runs. He left his coat in her hands, which she later uses as evidence against him, falsely accusing him. What does he do? He runs. He, He puts as much distance as possible between him and this situation. Well, that's sort of what Peter is saying here. Abstain from it. Keep as far away from possible, from these fleshly desires, impulses, lusts. Just run. Keep yourselves out of situations where those things might come into play. Put as much distance between yourself and those things as possible in your Christian lives. Now, as Paul would say, you can't get out of the world. You can't just leave the world. We're surrounded by it. But personally, behaviorally, In our thinking, in all these ways, put as much distance between them and yourself as possible. Now, he gives a couple of reasons. He doesn't just say, do it. He gives a couple of reasons. One has to do with our status as sojourners and exiles. He appeals to them on the basis now of their identity. I urge you as you are sojourners and exiles here. Now, remember, he started this letter uh, back in chapter 1, verse 1, referring to them as those who are elect exiles. And he's developed this theme, as we've seen, of their identity as the people of God. They are a separate race, a nation apart. That's who we are. This is not our permanent home. This, This environment is not our culture, as we are the people of God. We are visitors here. And visitors in a place behave differently than a permanent resident. It's interesting to note that the the language Peter uses, sojourners and exiles, is the exact same language in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, that Abraham uses of himself. Uh, Of course, Genesis was written in Hebrew, but before the time of Christ, the Old Testament was translated into Greek, translation known as the Septuagint. Good. Uh, which was the Bible of, of Paul? You know, they, they, if you see a difference sometimes when Paul quotes the Old Testament, you go back and read it, and it may be a little bit different. Well, Paul's quoting from a Greek that Greek translation. Well, in that Greek translation, where Abraham refers to himself, these same words are used. It's that it's that touching passage where Abraham is is purchasing a grave for his wife Sarah, and he he comes to. The people there, and he says, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. And it's the exact same words that Peter uses right here. I can't help but think Peter did that consciously to remind us of Abraham that just as God called Abraham to leave his country and to live in a place that was not his home, to live there as a sojourner, an alien, uh, and, a, and a foreigner. Well, we, as the people of God, are like Abraham. We are heading toward our true home. We are waiting for God to fulfill that promise of our true home. And he gives us the promised land. But we're not there yet. Like Abraham, we, as Peter says, are sojourners and exiles. Because we are, we don't live like people here. We're visitors. We are a different race. We are a different nation. We are looking for a different home. And the way of living For our people and for our home is very different for the people of this world. And so Peter appeals to us to behave, to abstain from the sinful behaviors of this world around us, the society around us, because of who we are as sojourners, he says, and exiles. But he also uh, argues that we should abstain from these things for a very personal reason. They wage war against your souls. You see, these sins are not just little peccadilloes, little sins, little pleasures that, you know, as long as they don't hurt anybody, it's okay. You know, as long as no one knows, it's okay. Peter says these things are a 9 11 terrorist attack against your soul. These things are airplanes full of fuel being driven into the twin towers of your being. And they explode. This is a war being waged against your soul. Even the little sins. Even as we heard this weekend, that circle of respectable sins, sins that you allow in your life, but God does not. They wage war. They are attacking. They are destroying. They are bombing. They are shooting. That's the, the image that Peter uses. It's, it's a sort of a verb form of the word for a soldier. To wage war against. Sin is an army coming at you with the purpose of defeating you and destroying you and conquering you. Any sin. Peter doesn't qualify that. Well, it's the big sins. It is the big sins, But it's also those we would say, well, they're small. They're little. They really don't hurt anybody. Peter says they've declared war on your soul. Well, what's what's the option? Well, as he says, we abstain from those things. We stay far away from those things. Uh, Of course, the rest of the Scripture tells us that we fight back. We wage war in return. Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, the works of the flesh. Don't let them destroy you. You actively and aggressively destroy them. If there's a war going on, you need to know to fight back. Peter says we abstain from these behaviors. Why? Because of who we are as sojourners and exiles. Again, our identity And because those things do immeasurable harm. You look at the world and you say, hmm, they look like they're having fun. They're being destroyed from the inside out by their sin. And we need to have the faith to see that and to act differently, to act accordingly. Because the sins wage war against your soul. And I think that includes the body, basically just saying against your entire being. They are harmful. They are destructive. The wages of sin is always death in one form or another. Never forget that. So the first instruction that Peter gives here is that we abstain from fleshly desires. The second is simply putting that in a positive way. He says in verse 12 that we are to live commendable lives in Christ. Now I have to admit i changed that. At first I said live godly lives in Christ and that's true. But it's not really exactly the way Peter words it. As we have it here in the ESV, he says, keep your conduct honorable. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Essentially, he uses the word, a word for good. Um, there are a couple of words in Greek that can mean good. Uh, agathos, the name Agatha comes from it. Uh, has the idea of being good. It's kind of like our word good. It means general. He, Peter uses a different word here, kalos, that has the idea of something being good in the sense of virtuous, commendable, praiseworthy, but not really godly, although it would certainly be godly. But he says, let your conduct, let your way of life among the Gentiles be good. Essentially, he's saying, live in such a way that the Gentiles themselves, by that their standards, would find your life commendable, would find your life honorable or respectable or praiseworthy. Because yes, the pagans, the unbelievers in the world around us do have an acknowledgement of a certain code of conduct. They do respect integrity. They do respect upright behavior. They do respect fair and right dealing uh, and, and personal behavior. And that's essentially what Peter is saying here. Live Lives in Christ Jesus, as followers of Christ, would be commendable to the world around you. Um, Notice why he says this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles as honorable. When they speak against you as evildoers, may they see your good deeds. Need to live that way, one, because we do live among the Gentiles. We we are we do interact with this world. We we should not be cloistered off, separated out from the world. We are among the Gentiles. They do see us. They are the watching world that witnesses how we live. But also, he says, when they when they slander you, when they accuse you as evildoers. Now you might say that Christians today have a little bit of a PR problem in the world. That's nothing new. Christians in the first century had a public relations difficulty with the world. And that came out about because of the ignorance about who Christians are. It came about because of malice toward who Christians are. But let me give you just some of the things uh, of which the early church in, in Peter's day and afterward was slandered. They were accused of cannibalism. This of the Lord's Supper. They were accused of immorality because they would call their meetings the agape or the love feast. They were accused of, of damaging trade. Remember in Ephesus where uh, the, the, the disciples, the followers of Christ there, were seen to be damaging the trade in, in trinkets for Artemis, uh, the, the pagan god. Accused of damaging families when one person becomes a Christian but others in a family do not. Accused of turning slaves against their master as they gave a new meaning and a new dignity and new worth even to slaves. They were accused of being haters of mankind with their message of judgment for those who were not in Christ. They were accused of atheism in their rejection of the Roman pantheon, the Roman gods. They were accused of disloyalty, being bad citizens, because they wouldn't worship Caesar. Because they wouldn't partake in the Roman civil, civic religion. But insisted on worshiping Christ only. All of these things brought against Christians, you know, accusing Christians of these different things. Well, it's true today as well. You know, think of I was trying to think through some things. We are accused of, of obscurantism, being backward, you know, because we can't see that the world has moved on. Our ideas are old and obsolete. We're accused of lower intelligence, we're accused of narrow-mindedness. We're accused, of course, of judgmentalism and intolerance. In some cases, that may be justified. Uh, but certainly, in our refusal to accept things that are sin and calling them sin in our society, uh, we're accused of being bigoted, of being hostile, of being haters of mankind. You've heard the word homophobe, which doesn't just mean fear of homosexuals, but a hatred of them. Well, no. Simply because we disagree with that lifestyle and say that this is not biblical, this is not God's design, does not imply hatred. And yet that's how the world hears it. That's how the world sees it. Well, notice in the face of that, uh, Peter says, So that when they speak against you as evildoers and as they speak against us, they may see your good deeds. The idea here is that people have misconceptions or have conceptions in their mind about Christians, we would hope, or misconceptions, but as they get to know a Christian, as they get to see Christians live, that conception begins to change. Because what they've thought about Christians, what they've heard about Christians, does not match the reality that they see in Christians. Tragically, all too often it, it, it might. But the ideal is that they see Christ in us, and they come to say, you know, everything I heard about Christians was wrong. Or the ideas I got about Christians from the news and TV and sitcoms and the movies just doesn't match the reality in the lives of Christians I know. They will see your good deeds as we live among the Gentiles. Because you see, Christians know, or the non-Christians know what you claim to be. They know what that means. They have some idea, and they'll watch to see if you live up to it. The funny thing about the world is the world can abide fools and immoral people, but it cannot abide the hypocrite. If you never set out any standard of righteousness and you, and you live in complete unrighteousness, they just, you know, there you are. But if you claim to be a believer, they will watch to see if you live up to that standard. And if you don't, they say hypocrite. Now, that's not always fair. Failing to live up to a high standard is not hypocrisy, it's humanity. But a deliberate intent to say one thing and live another is hypocrisy. And it's wrong. Not only does the world condemn it, Christ condemns it. That's one thing just to fall short of a sincere standard. It's another thing deliberately to say one thing and knowingly live another way. A double life. The world rightly condemns that because God himself condemns it. Now, you say, wait a minute. You know, Jesus said not to let others see our works of righteousness. Well, that's Matthew 6.1, beware of practicing your righteousness before people in order to be seen by them. Is Peter departing from Jesus? Well, no. Jesus' point here in the Sermon on the Mount is the heart. You know, if your whole intention of of giving or going to church or, or worshiping or serving is just so people will see you and be impressed with you, Jesus says that's what you get, the applause of men, but God is not impressed. It's two different things. Peter's not talking about that here. Rather, he's applying Matthew five thirteen through 16, the passage we read earlier about being salt, about being light. Because notice what Jesus says. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, which is quite an echo uh, that Peter has here of Jesus' words in that passage. So the point is not just so people will see and think well of us, the point is, as we follow Christ, people will see us, and we want them to see Christ in us. They want us to taste the saltiness. They want, we, uh, we want them to taste the saltiness. We want them to see the light of Christ in us. And so glorify not us. We're not seeking praise for ourselves, but for our Father who is in heaven. And those good deeds can take all kinds of forms of service, compassion, of giving. It was interesting, I was uh, before I came over this morning looking at the Parade magazine, in the AJC, and they had an article in it on what America cares about, and compassion counts more than ever, and they broke down three groups particularly that are involved in serving and ministering compassionately to others. One was Yeppies, young, engaged problem solvers, one gets the idea, someone just made that up on the spot, uh, who, people who are moved through social networking and that kind of thing, Rapid responders, often people who have a pet cause or one particular area they're interested in. But the third they describe as the mission-minded, people largely motivated by their faith. It's good to see at least some acknowledgement of that. But that's the kind of thing Peter is talking about here. Uh, And the good news is that the the early church overcame the world's slander. And we can, too. Notice a couple of things. Celsus, Roman writer, early 3rd century, early 200s, made vicious attacks in writing against Christians. He accuses Christians of ignorance and foolishness and superstition, all kinds of things, but never of immorality, never of hypocrisy. Eusebius, the church historian, wrote in the early 300s, He said, in in living in that day, he said, the splendor of the Catholic and only true church, not Roman Catholic, this was even before that that divide ever took place, talking about the, the universal church. The Catholic and only church, which is always the same, grew in magnitude and power and reflected its piety and simplicity and freedom and the modesty and purity of its inspired life and philosophy to every nation, both of Greeks and barbarians, at the same time. The slanderous accusations which had been brought against the whole church also vanished, and there remained our teaching alone which has prevailed over all and which is acknowledged to be superior to all in dignity and temperance and in divine and philosophical doctrines, so that none of them now ventures to affix a base calumny or you know an insult, a slander against our faith or any such slander as our ancient enemies formerly delighted in. You see, we can silence the slander of the world by abstaining from the desires of the flesh, by keeping our conduct among the unbelieving world honorable, commendable, good. That the end, as he says here, is that they may glorify God on the day of visitation. Day of visitation most likely just refers to the day of Christ, the day of his return, the day of judgment, the day when God visits us in in his judgment on that day brings in the fullness of our salvation. But glorify God. Most believers won't be glorifying God on the day of judgment. They may be cursing him. They may they have to acknowledge Christ you know, and bow the knee before him, but they may not like it. But Peter's speaking of people who do glorify God, which implies that these are people who may be slandered Christians at one point, but through the verbal testimony and through the witness of a... Good life, commendable and godly, yes, life, had their minds changed. The Lord using the verbal witness and the life testimony to bring them to faith in Christ. So that on the day of judgment, they too are part of the church. It glorifies God on the day that he visits us in judgment. Preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Well, no, no. Words are necessary to the gospel. That's why John begins, in the beginning was the word, Christ, but also the word of God, truth. We need words to testify to the historic facts of the gospel. But Francis is right on with Peter here when he says, let your life win a hearing for the gospel. Maintain truth and bear witness to the truth of the gospel. You know, the desire, Peter, for his, his readers and for us as well, is that we would live in such a way that far from contradicting the testimony of our lips, that its power would be all the more enhanced by the virtue, by the praiseworthiness of our lives. And As we follow Christ this week, as we rub shoulders with the world, may it be so. Let's pray. Father, we pray uh, negatively that that our lives would not discredit our testimony. Well, they can never discredit your truth. It is what it is. But we pray, Father, that our lives would not discredit our own witness to the truths of the gospel. But, Father, we pray just the opposite, that our lives in Christ would bear faithful testimony and support the testimony that we have. Father, we pray that you would use our words and our lives, to lead others to Christ, to commend to them the truth of the gospel and the power that it has to transform our lives and to give hope in this fallen and broken world. All to the glory of God, we pray. Amen.